It is 5pm, it is Monday, the 23rd of January 2023. 23-1-23, how are you? How has your weekend? Did you have a good weekend? You did? Good? Well and good, we leave it there then. Uh, thank you for finding me again. I'm Richie Allen, this is your Richie Allen Show, and I, by the way, I've got two very interesting guests lined up for you today, so let's, um, let's get them on, but not before we have a chat about some of the bigger stories of the day. Uncensored. Unfiltered. You're listening to Richie Allen on the world's most popular independent news radio show. It's the Richie Allen Show, broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Yes, the founder and the leader of the Heritage Party, David Curtin, will be with me this hour. It's been a while. I think it was October when David last graced us with his presence. Can't wait to speak with him. Tony Gosling, who's a staple of The Richie Allen Show, former BBC journalist, as well as many other things. And that is interesting because we'll be talking about the BBC this afternoon. Two very good guests. You can join in via my website, richieallen.co.uk. If you'd like to leave a comment, that is the way to do it. Leave it there for me, please. It's a shame this programme isn't videoed in the same way that LBC and Talk Radio video, because I've got a team of Irish dancers in the corner. Wouldn't be the same without them. Now they, they, they just walk out. They file out silently after dancing a jig to the theme tune of your Richie Allen show. I've had a good weekend, nice and restful. I wasn't thrilled about the outcome of the Manchester United game at Arsenal, at the Emirates yesterday, but what a hell of a game it was. All things being fair and equal. Now, it is a good game of football. Not a good one to lose in the last minute, but a good game it was to watch. You know those people who jump in when you tweet regarding the jabs? Like, you tweet about safety. You might tweet about the death numbers, the injuries, and they're straight on it. And the accounts, they... These accounts look very inactive, otherwise. Isn't it strange? The speed. Like, you put something out about the jabs. I tweeted out today because it was worth pointing out that people who were injured, definitely injured, by COVID jabs, they went in great numbers to London over the weekend, Saturday, I think, to make an appearance at Downing Street because they need to be heard. Not a peep from the mainstream media. And I pointed out, you know, people who have been devastated by the jabs, which are useless because they don't do anything really, and they seem to be harming a lot of people. Within milliseconds, accounts were all over it. So are these computer-generated responses... Or is it a mixture of both? Is it computer-generated responses? And is it also people who like to hang around Twitter to, to jump on things they don't agree with? Which is fair enough, I suppose. Anyway, large crowd in London over the weekend. And um, it's a tragic thing. You know, the media not talking about it. I'm not being naive, by the way. I'm going to drop this thread because it's obvious they're not going to to cover it in any way. Um, Tory Sleaze. Tory Sleaze is dominating the UK media landscape this Monday, January 23rd. Let's listen in on BBC News at One with Clive Myrie. You're going to hear Clive Myrie on BBC Radio, BBC Television One, BBC One Television at One. I'll never get a gig. 
Good afternoon and welcome to the BBC News at One. The Prime Minister has asked his independent ethics advisor to examine how the Conservative Party chairman and former Chancellor Nadim Zahawi settled a multi-million pound tax dispute. Rishi Sunak says there are questions that need answers. Mr Zahawi says his error was careless but not deliberate and his advisers say he doesn't intend to resign. Labour, however, warns he needs to come clean and they're calling his position untenable. Here's our political correspondent, Ioni Wells. You resign as party chair, Mr Zahawi. Few words, big questions about one huge tax bill. Nadim Zahawi is confident he acted properly and says he looks forward to answering any questions about his tax affairs. This man, Sir Laurie Magnus, will now be asking them, the government's independent ethics advisor. Integrity and accountability is really important to me and clearly in this case there are questions that need answering and that's why I've asked our independent advisor to get to the bottom of everything, to investigate the matter fully and establish all the facts and provide advice to me on Nadeem Zahawi's compliance with the ministerial code. I'm pleased that Nadeem Zahawi has agreed with that approach and has agreed to fully cooperate with that investigation. That was Rishi Sunak, the current Prime Minister. He sounds very nice, doesn't he? He isn't really. Let's hear a little bit more of that report. The Prime Minister appointed Nadeem Zahawi to be chairman of the Conservative Party in the autumn. In the summer, he had to pay a tax bill of about £5 million to HMRC, thought to include a penalty. This was when he was Chancellor, the man responsible for all our taxes. Representative democracy, eh? eh? Who, who pays a £5 million tax bill, including a penalty? Uh, somebody who is ferociously wealthy, that is who. Let's hear a bit more. Is the HMRC still after you, sir? Is the HMRC still after you, sir? Shouted a journalist outside Zahawi's residence today. Obviously, he didn't answer. The dispute was over shares in the polling company YouGov, which he set up before he became an MP. His father took founding shares in it. In a statement on Saturday, he said HMRC had disagreed about the allocation of these shares, that he had agreed to settle the matter and pay what they said was due and they had said it was a careless and not deliberate error. Mm. The Labour Party and the grand standers and virtue signallers in the media had a field day. The usual suspects, LBC, don't panic. I'm not going to share any of that with you. As Zahawi, of course, has done far, far worse, hasn't he? Remember he said that vaccine passports were discriminatory only to then introduce them for venues with crowds. He's a grubby little whore, isn't he, Nadim Zahawi? That's H-O-O-R, by the way. The other... The other whore, yeah. Although he's probably, uh, well, most certainly a whore as well. Sleaze everywhere. We might talk about that with Tony Gosling later on. As reported by the Sunday Times yesterday, and today picked up by everyone, let's stay with the BBC. Why not? The chairman of the BBC, Richard Sharp, has issued a statement denying claims that he shortly before being given the role helped the then Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, secure a loan guarantee agreement Labour is continuing calls for a full investigation. Both men deny any conflict of interest and the government insists there was a transparent and rigorous selection process for the chairman's job. No conflict of interest whatsoever. You helped to guarantee, you helped to provide a guarantor for me to get a loan of up to £800,000 and the very short time after that I recommended you to be the next chairman of the BBC. Yeah, there's no conflict of interest at all, sir. 
Is there? Our media editor, Katie Razzle, is here. Katie, just fill us in. It's a great name for a media editor, Katie Razzle. It's brilliant, isn't it? And on the details to all this. Look, he is under significant pressure after these reports over the weekend in the Sunday Times, which essentially was suggesting that we, he withheld information that could have been a conflict of interest when it came to him being appointed as BBC chairman. So the Sunday Times was reporting that he was helped, helped to arrange this loan guarantee for the then Prime Minister Boris Johnson and that weeks later the government, through Boris Johnson, made him their preferred candidate to be BBC chairman. <laughs> So today he wrote to BBC staff, he talked about the story being a distraction and he said he wanted to make clear there was no conflict of interest because he said all he did was connect a businessman who's planning to act or wanted to act as a loan guarantor to Boris Johnson with the head of the civil service who could give him advice about what was allowed. Mr Sharp says in that email to staff, I was not involved in making a loan or arranging a guarantee and I did not arrange any financing. What I did do was to seek an introduction of Sam Blythe to the relevant official in government. Nothing to see here. Please disperse, says BBC's Richard Sharp. Yeah. Now, Boris Johnson was doorstepped outside his home this afternoon. What did he say? This is a load of complete nonsense, absolute nonsense. Let me just, let me just tell you, Richard Sharp is a good and a wise man, uh, but he knows absolutely nothing about my personal finances. I can tell you that for, for 100% ding-dang sure. This is just another example of the BBC disappearing up its own fundament, and that, <laughs> I propose, is... is so it's just a coincidence. This is another example of the BBC disappearing up its own arse. You can be ding-dang sure of that, Sir Johnson. Coincidence that this appointment was arranged at the same time as your loan? Brilliant. Is it just a coincidence that he got the job at the BBC around about the same time you got the loan? Is it? Is it? Is it? No answer. No answer. Is it? 100% ding-dang sure. Can we be sure that you're not lying? 100% ding-dang sure. Ding-dang sure. The little fat bollocks was trapped outside his house by the journalist wearing running gear. Running gear has never suited anybody less than it suits Boris Johnson. Just just look it up. I mean, are you fat shaming him? Yeah, I am. He's a little fat bollocks. That's all he is, really. Boris Johnson there. We'll get into this with David Curtin, no doubt, and with Tony Gosling a bit later on. Look, these are the least of their crimes, these people. And they're not in charge. We know that. It's ten minutes past the hour of five o'clock. Gillian Maxwell has given an interview to Talk TV to Jeremy Kyle. I have no idea why either anyone would want to be interviewed by Jeremy Coyle. I mean, that's pound shop stuff really, isn't it? I mean, if she wanted to give an exclusive television interview, she could have picked somebody a little bit more, I don't know, classy or glamorous than, than Jeremy Coyle. Yeah. But she did. She gave an interview to Jeremy Coyle from her, from her Florida prison, where she's in jail for 20 years. She was found guilty of luring young girls to massage rooms for Jeffrey Epstein. And she's repeated the claim that the photograph, which seems to depict Virginia Roberts Dufre standing alongside the grand old Duke of York, right, Prince Andrew, that she she's repeated the claim that it is fake. I don't believe it's real for a second, she tells Jeremy Kyle. This is being broadcast this evening here in the UK. And she repeated that. So, what 
do the victims of Jeffrey Epstein and Prince Andrew say about that? Well, Lisa Bloom is a lawyer who represents some of these victims. She spoke with Good Morning Britain today. I can tell you that they are just disgusted and offended every time Ghislaine Maxwell opens her mouth and, and has an opinion on something. How does she know anything about that photo? Of course, she would never have received an original of it. In court proceedings, we work with photocopies, but I can tell you that Prince Andrew, when there was an active case against him, had every right to get the original to send it out for testing, to prove the point that it was a fake if he wanted to make that point, and it never happened. That's an interesting fact, by the way. He did have the opportunity to have the original photograph examined by, by experts in such, in such fields and didn't remotely show any interest in doing that. He was there, wasn't he? He was there. He wasn't in in Pizza Express with one of his daughters, as he claimed, Annie. And instead, he settled reportedly for millions of dollars. And that's where it's going to end. It really doesn't matter what Ghislaine Maxwell has to say about it. In your experience, Lisa. Yeah, that's Ed Balls uh, presenting or co-presenting Good Morning Britain again. Remember all that ranting I did over the years about politicians receiving television and radio jobs being handed TV and radio jobs, and the problem with that. Anywho, yes, it is being reported, or it was reported yesterday in the Mail on Sunday, that this guy Andrew, this grubby, seedy little man, is considering trying to get some of his money back from Virginia Dufre. Good luck with that, son. That was Lisa Bloom. It's 13 minutes past five. This is a very serious story that caught me on the hop this morning. I was going about my business and I was uh, listening to the radio. I was watching Sky News Breakfast Television with uh, my favourite and your favourite, Kay, uh, Kay Burley. And she had a story about children going missing in this country, which is very important. Have a listen. An investigation has revealed that dozens of children seeking asylum have disappeared and could have been kidnapped from a Brighton hotel run by the Home Office. Charities fear the children have been trafficked and the pattern is being repeated along the south coast of England. Let's get more, should we? Uh, former Children's Commissioner for England, Anne Longfield. Hello, Ms Longfield. This seems absolutely unbelievable. Tell us more. Well, these reports are, yes, as you say, almost unbelievable um, today in this country. Um, they are very, very serious. We're talking about hundreds of children under 18s who are being placed into hotels when they've arrived to this country, often arrived really traumatised, having travelled for weeks, months, even years to get here. Um, and within hours, many of them are going missing. The figures that we're, we're being talked about are in the hundreds. And in that one hotel alone, 79 children are still missing and many thought to have been collected by traffickers who will then, um, you know, uh, put them into employment with county lines and exploitation and simply disappearing from view. What sort of age range are we talking about? Well, the reports are of children who are 15, 16, 17. They may be younger, but those are what have been reported. But let's remember these are really vulnerable children. They'll often end up in those hotels already having what they call debt bonds 
on their heads, which is where the traffickers will have charged them to get to this country in the first place. And then that's a debt that they expect to pay back. So in plain view, they've been collected outside the hotel and simply disappearing. Now, the police have found some. Um, they think that they were around 120, um, six children that have gone missing, 79 remain missing. But in my view, this should be a national emergency. These are young people in our country who are being exploited. They're not being looked after and protected to prevent that, being, that, that happening. That's Anne Longfield, a recent children's commissioner. Brody had a good question for her. Why is the why aren't the police and thus the Home Office protecting these kids? Good question. Well, that is the big question. Uh, the reports are that local councils have been warning the Home Office that these hotels aren't in safe places. There are exploiter rings already in those areas. The police say they're waiting for guidance. The local authorities don't have the responsibility, they say, to take on that safeguarding themselves. The Home Office say it's the council's job. Those children are the ones who carry that bird in the middle of that. They have to sort this out and we have to make sure they get the protection because otherwise we're simply handing them over to the exploiters who are going to have them working in county lines, um, uh, sexually exploited all around this country. And that's something that no one wants. Pretty horrific stuff that. Anne Longfield, the former Children's Commissioner, speaking with Kay Burley on Sky News this morning. Now, this was a really interesting... Did you see Jeremy Clarkson's article in the Sunday Times yesterday? I saw it yesterday afternoon. I'm glad I didn't see it in the AM because I would have ruined the Melodies show because I would have talked quite a bit about it. We don't need that on a Sunday morning. But he's written this for the Sunday Times. I'm going to synopsize this as best as I can. He writes about his son coming over for a father and son pre-football supper the other day and they laughed about which innocuous word had been banned that particular day and who'd been cancelled. And then after a pause, he said, the son with a solemn face, you do know there's a war going on, don't you? Clarkson writes that he isn't talking about Ukraine, that he was talking, wasn't talking about Ukraine, he was talking about a full-on left-wing campaign to unstitch and burn the fabric of Britain. And the genius is, writes Clarkson, that no one really knows that what they're doing is serious. We laugh as they changed the name of the Sir Francis Drake Primary School to something less slavey. We think it's all a big joke, but it isn't. He goes on to talk about this being some sort of military operation. He writes, It seized control of our television and radio stations to such an extent that last week, Sophie Raworth said on the BBC News at 6, with a straight face, and over now to our LGBT and diversity correspondent. I'm glad he noticed that, because I've been talking about that. We had a giggle on one of the monologues last week about that very thing. He goes on to write, TV drama, unaffected, Right, and when was the last time you saw a fictional police force hunting a gang of Muslim extremists? It's always the far right, he writes, or he wrote yesterday. Then he goes on to talk about, you can say what you like about Johnson or Sunak, but don't joke about Greta Thunberg or they'll, if you're a comedian, they'll blow a piece of tumbleweed across the stage. And then he writes this, which interests me, because I've talked a lot about this, and 
you'll remember me talking about this if you do listen to this programme regularly. He writes, In sport, we sometimes have three women doing the punditry at a men's football match. And if anyone remarks on this on Twitter, they are immediately singled out for the India rubber treatment. And who's doing the erasing? Who's making the rules? That's just it. We don't have a clue, he writes. What we do know is that having taken control of the television stations without a shot being fired, they turned their attention like any conquering army to the schools. And he writes, here they went fully Pol Pot, doing a comprehensive year zero job on the curriculum so that kids would know their parents were all racists apart from those with unconscious bias who were racist as well, he wrote in his column yesterday. And then he thinks, if you don't know the war is going on, when you drop little Johnny off the school gates, you think he's going to learn the nine times tables. No, he isn't. He's learning that he might actually be a girl, which is why there are probably tampon dispensers in the boys' lavatories. And he goes on to have a pop at the police. He goes on to have a pop at Extinction Rebellion and how the police just stand by. And then he goes on to say this. It's even in your office. If you run a business and you discover that a person in an androgynous trouser suit has been sitting around all day worrying about panda bears and what painting is most in need of a daubing with oxtail, you know that you absolutely cannot say anything to them without doing some, you know, work. Because then they will claim you've affected their mental health and you'll have to be sacked. They're cross with you, they make a complaint, you haven't got a hope in hell of surviving that, which means you'll have to spend every day for the next few months sitting on a bench in the park and feeding the ducks because you don't have the courage to tell your family that you've been let go for using the word homosexual, which we learned last week from a Home Office spokesperson is a medical term. It's very good this, yesterday's Sunday Times, if you get a chance to read that. Peter Hitchens, who writes for the Mail and the Mail on Sunday, read that article and was very impressed by it. Here he is speaking with Talk TV's Mike Graham this morning. This country is in the grip of a cultural revolution in the schools, in broadcasting, and in the world in general, in which it is increasingly impossible to say anything which doesn't fit with the official ideology. Mm. Yes, and I mean, you know, thankfully, your newspaper, the Mail on Sunday, and the Daily Mail is relatively robust yeah, we are, in no, these we, matters. The, the, there are. Th- that's one of the reasons why the, the, there's so much hate directed towards yes. towards those newspapers. People who often actually don't read them mm. frequently express hatred and, mm. and, and loathing of them. And, and often I turn to them, so can you tell me exactly what it is you don't like? Yeah. And sometimes I say to them, well, just tell me who the major columnists are. Yeah. If you if you if you hate it so much, they don't know. No, of course not. They just know that it's the the, the correct thing to do, and I think they've picked this up in school amongst mm. other things, the correct thing to do is to despise the, these these increasingly rare mm. zones of dissent. No, they definitely put them up in schools. My, my sons are still in school and they quite often regularly tell me what things are said in their media classes and the things that they study um, and the kinds of pejorative terms that are thrown around uh, about papers like the Daily Mail, um, about organisations like ours, and it's kind of quite shocking, actually, that teachers are allowed to get away with it. Yeah, I've heard of, of, of children getting funny looks from teachers when they say that their parents read the, yeah. read the Daily oh, Mail, the Mail totally. on Sunday as well. And this should not be happening. Uh, give over, Peter. I've heard children say that they get funny looks when they say their parents read the Daily Mail. But that's microaggressions there. That's a bit hypocritical from Peter Hitchens, isn't it?
it. The children are being microaggressed when they mention that their father or mother reads the mail online or the telegraph. Yeah. 23 minutes past the hour. It's the Richie Allen Show, Monday's programme, 230123. Numerologists, is there anything in that? Back in 60 seconds. In 60 seconds. I am going to be at Comedy Podcast Live from the 27th to the 29th of January at the Kegworth Hotel in Derby. It'll be me and a bunch of other brilliant free speakers who think what they want to think, say what they think, and really don't give two what anyone else has got to say about it. So do come along and join us. Phil Zimmerman will be there, Andrew Lawrence, Alistair Williams, Wright said Fred. I can promise you a few things. You will laugh, you will feel better, and you will realise that you're not alone. So do grab your tickets, comedypodcastlive.com. And I very much look forward to spending time with you there. Hi there, it's Eamon here from Immunex365, and I just want to give you a quick update for the new year. We are now in the depths of winter, and due to the lack of adequate sunlight, it is also the time when those of us living in the Northern Hemisphere have the lowest levels of vitamin D in our bodies. If there is ever a time to give your immune system a boost, it is probably now. Also, I am really happy to be able to tell you that not only have we been able to substantially reduce the price of Immunex365 since we launched in October last, but we can now supply directly to Ireland. For details of how each of the supplements in Immunex365 are formulated to work together and protect you from colds, flu and other respiratory diseases this winter, just head over to immunex365.co.uk. It's the BBG, not the BBC. This is your Richie Allen Show, live from the magnificent city of Salford. Welcome back. It's 25 minutes past the hour. David Curtin, the Heritage Party founder and leader, will be with me in a few minutes' time. Tony Gosling will join me in hour two. It's the first programme of the week. I look forward to your comments. That being said, good, good, I was able to get in. I was able to get in. Did you see this, did you? Today, this made my website today, it also made the news elsewhere, that some hospitals in the UK are still using COVID restrictions to prevent families from getting in to see their loved ones. Have you seen this? Check it out on the website. Hospitals were ordered last March, that's March 2022, of course, to drop all of these restrictions that they were... Um, no longer necessary and that people shouldn't be, you know, prevented from seeing the people they love. But a lot of hospital trusts are still keeping some measures in place. That might be of some interest to you as well. And there's another story on this, on, on the website today. It's a really interesting one. It's about terrorism games, computer games, available to play online, which enable the player to adopt the the profile of somebody who's committed a, a very serious terrorist attack. So you can play games online, certain computer games, first-person games, right, where you can be a shooter, a real-life shooter, somebody who's actually committed a, a terrorist uh, attack. That's an interesting story. Check that out. Hi to David Keane. Hi to Gail. Good evening, Gail. Hi to Craig. 
how you Craig to Sean Omar hi Sean nice to have you listening and thanks for your very kind words I appreciate them hi to Faisal as well there's no excuse says Faisal when local police say that they need instruction to protect children from child traffickers it's very good Patrick says natural law is a body of unchanging moral principles regarded as a basis for all human conduct thanks so much for that hi to Scaramouche who asks have the Met Police been visiting hotels I know where you're going with that one. Craig says, The alleged victims, Richie, I know sophistry, but until any of the individuals concerned have been found guilty in a court of law, any accusations are alleged. That's a very good point too. Absolutely, I take that point. Hi to Vicky who says, I hope Tony is going to speak about how Greg Lance Watkins got evidence from Berlin that shows EEC and EEU are Nazi. I don't think we're going to get into that too much tonight, Vicky. But then again, you never know. Uh, good evening to Paul. You're the same age as me, Richie, or thereabouts. I'm sure you'll remember that there was a jazz mag called Razzle. There was. Top Shelf magazines. I remember them well. Top Shelf magazines were banned in Ireland until the late 1990s. I think I've said this before on the show. So when I was a younger boy and we would take the ferry to Hollyhead to then get a train to go to Manchester to watch Manchester United or some some other Friends of mine would then stay on the train and go to Liverpool. Well, they would have gotten a different train, but you know what I mean. They'd go to Liverpool. We would have orders, actual orders, for pretty harmless top-shelf magazines. Just nudie mags, really. That's all they were, really. And uh, those were the days. It is 28 and one half minutes past the hour. David Curtin is standing by. Here is Thomas Heden, or Thomas Hedden, but I think it's Heden, and Georgia. I like this. I need to be a bit sharper, eh? It's a Monday. You'll, you'll forgive me. You'll forgive me. It's not a neck. Thomas Heaton and Georgia. 29 minutes to the top of the hour. Love that song. It's a Eurichi Allen show broadcasting live from BBG Towers in Salford. My first guest today is familiar to you, a real gentleman. He is the founder and leader of the Heritage Party, a former member of the London Assembly and a former teacher. It's great to welcome back to the programme for the first time this year. Let's say hi to our friend David Curtin. Welcome back, David. Hi, Richie. Thank you. That's really kind of you. That's good to join you again. Uh, it's great to have you on. Is, is the, we've so much to cover in the half an hour we have. Is there, do we need any more evidence of the unhealthy relationship between the political class in this country and the national media than the questions being asked today about Richard Sharps, the BBC chairman's relationship with the former prime minister of this country, Boris Johnson? This is some story, right? This, this, I, I, that story sort of passed me by today. I think it's a new story. But um, yeah, I, I certainly there's a lot of questions to be asked about the relationships between, you know, um, MPs and uh, in general and sort of what they go on and uh, and what they do and, uh, the you know, the, the sort of uh, vested interest that they have. Yeah, it smells really bad, this one. Sharp, Richard Sharp arranged for somebody to act as guarantor for Boris Johnson to receive loans up to £800,000. Before the contra- the ink on those contracts had dried, Sharp was being recommended by the Conservative Party and Boris Johnson for the gig at the BBC, which he then got. It, whatever way you slice this, this smells to high heaven. 
Yeah, it's, it's a clear conflict of interest, isn't it? I mean, you know, where there's finances involved, where you've got someone uh, arranging finances for an MP, you know, obviously Boris Johnson was the prime minister, um, you know, you've got the Nolan principles in place, which everyone is supposed to adhere to, where you're supposed to act with integrity, you're supposed to act with like pure, transparent honesty. And this just smells very, very bad. And so, you know, th these are things that all MPs should know. They should not be doing things that, you know, even if they're legal, they should not have the whiff of darkness about them, which this does. And uh, clearly, uh, there's a conflict of interest there. Um, you know, you can't say if anything is actually being illegal here, but, um, you know, perhaps it should be. So, yeah, th this is the kind of thing that makes people question um, the um, honesty of MPs and whether they're acting in our best interests or not. And in the same weekend, we find out that the former Chancellor of the Exchequer, Nadim Zahawi, may very well have had to pay a penalty to His Majesty's revenue and customs as it is now. Labour Party are screaming that he should resign immediately as the chairman of the Conservative Party. Some weekend this has been. What do you make of this story? Yeah, that's another one. Again, it, it's got it's got a bad smell about it, hasn't it? I mean, he's saying that oh, it was just a mistake. But seriously, a mistake worth three point seven million pounds to the Exchequer. I mean, it, a, a, someone who's just a normal working man, uh, if they don't pay two hundred pounds or one thousand pounds to the Inland Revenue, they'll be on your back, you know, in no time whatsoever. You know, they'll be weighing you down and taking taking you for everything you've got until you pay your tax bill. So here, yeah, he's he said he's, um, you know, sorted this out privately with uh, HMRC. But, you know, again, uh, questions have to be asked. And I, I'm no fan of Labour. I'm no fan of Angela Rayner. But um, a, blo a broken clock is right twice a day. And, you know, on this, I think she's got a point. Again, there is um, an issue here. This shouldn't be happening. And I think it's position uh, as uh, Tory party chairman is untenable. Just in case listeners are new to David and new to the show and they think that he's got a misogynistic streak running through him, the reason he mentioned Rayner is because Rayner asked the urgent question at uh, the House of Commons this afternoon about Sahawi. So uh, yeah, it was Rayner doing the, the complaining. Um, do you remember, I don't know if you're a horse racing man, I'm not, but I do remember watching a video years ago of a horse called Devon Locke failed to win the Grand National because he collapsed when he was on the final straight. Do you remember that, David? This uh, famous don't... horse, yeah. <laughs> no, no, that well, he was about he, he was about twenty lengths clear in the national. Uh, they finished going over the fences, and for some reason, got his legs tangled up and fell. Thankfully, he was okay. But it's one of the most famous spectacular failures in horse racing. I mention this because if Keir Starmer doesn't. Um, to, you know, take possession of the keys to number ten Downing Street after the next election. Well, it'll be the, the it'll be the biggest shock since I don't know since Wrexham beat Arsenal in the cup some years ago. Since I don't know, they're a shoe in Labour, right? They've got to lead the next the next government in this country. Nothing can stop that now. I would say. Well, the 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 Conservatives, I call them the fake Conservatives, are just absolutely dreadful. I mean, you know, they got rid of Boris Johnson because he was losing all the by elections that he stood in. Then they put Liz in who was worse then they put Rishi Sunak in who's even worse you know we're talking about um things 
things that smell bad in terms of finance. I mean, there's the whole issue with him uh, being a partner of Thelema, this uh, hedge fund. And, uh, you know, questions are being asked about the one billion pound contract they gave to Moderna, uh, which when when he was the chancellor um, and uh, his interests in that, did he have some some interests in that? Uh, that, that clearly, there was a conflict of interest, which would be, you know, much, much bigger uh, an issue than the things that we mentioned and anything else that en- that anyone's done. So, you know, I think he could crash and burn later on this year if there are questions about that. But, you know, the thing is, Labour are so unpopular as well. But, you know, I think people are just who are cons- fake conservative voters are just staying at home. They're just not bothering to vote for them. But there will also be a collapse in, in Labour, I think, ultimately, because they can't even define what a woman is. That's right. They don't represent the labouring man anymore, uh, any more than the conservatives represent people who are truly conservative. <laughs> Did you happen to read David Curtin as our guest, by the way, the founder and leader of the Heritage Party? Did you read Jeremy Clarkson's piece in the Sunday Times yesterday? I didn't see that particular one. I know the original one where he said the things about Meghan Markle. That's but right. He's apologising now, isn't he? Well, well, he, well, I think he has done. Um, but the the article yesterday in the Times didn't deal with that at all. It was a very well written piece. It it describes how his son came over for a pre football supper. And his son said to him, you do know there's a war going on, don't you? And Clarkson says in his piece, the son wasn't talking about Ukraine. Wait for this quote. He, the son, was, quote, talking about a full-on left-wing campaign to one stitch and burn the fabric of Britain. And the genius is that no one really knows that what they're doing is serious. We laugh as they change the name of the Sir Francis Drake primary school to something less slavey. We think it's all a big joke, but it isn't. Now, these are sentiments, I'm guessing, that that, that you share. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's this cultural Marxism, which is what's really behind political correctness or wokery. I mean, we use those words all the time, but they don't really do justice and uh, don't fully explain the um, uh, the organisation behind this and uh, how much it's planned and how much it's a deliberate undermining and corrosion of all our institutions and everything in our culture and to invert uh, everything and turn it upside down. I mean, we used to say this is a free country. You can do what you want. You say can say what you want. No one would say that anymore because we have so many laws um, about hate crime, hate speech, stirring up hatred. This whole edifice of hate has come into law, which is being used to stop people from saying anything, even having a joke, even having a bit of banter. I mean, things that we used to think were really funny. And when the BBC actually did do some funny comedies 30, 40 years ago, wouldn't be made now because there'd be someone immediately saying, oh, that's mis misogynistic, that's problematic, that's bigoted, whatever. And, you know, you just, everything that we once knew is being wrecked, destroyed, corroded, eroded, and um, and, and demolished. We've got to stand up for our culture and our heritage and try to restore it. Yeah, in the piece, he, he mentions how you're, 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 you know, increasingly likely when you switch a game on to see female pundits covering a male match. And I I remember bringing this up on this show a couple of years ago. 
I was increasingly bemused, David, listening to BBC Radio 5 Live in the morning, the breakfast programme, as I'm out and about with my, with my dogs. The, they've, they've, they've kind of picked up a habit of inviting fans, random fans on during the morning just to talk about last evening's game. And it's, it's usually women. And, you know, he makes the point in his article that if you point this out, like, that this is a bit strange and a bit weird that, you know, you switch on United against Arsenal or Chelsea against Spurs and you're increasingly hearing women in the commentary box and seeing them in the studio, you know, you're going to be called a misogynistic, hateful, whatever. But he says in his piece quite, you know, he writes very well in yesterday's Sunday Times that this is having an impact. It's having an impact on men, this. But nobody wants to talk about that. You're right. It's deliberate and it's cultural Marxism. And it's a it's a cultural Marxist oppressor victim narrative that says women are oppressed by society and historical patriarchy. And they have to change everything around to address that and empower women, but also not just empower women. They need to disempower men. So whatever was built by men, created by men, men's spaces have to go. You're not allowed men's spaces anymore. You're not allowed men to be um, shown on TV as as good role models. They have to put women in men's spaces, in men's places, to cancel men, essentially, as a group. Um, and, and then, uh, as they say, achieve social justice and equality. But that has an effect on men. Because, you know, a lot of what what do men do? You know, there is nothing that is exclusively for men anymore, but you can have anything that is exclusive for women. And, you know, that's unhealthy. Yeah, I'm all for empowering women, but not at the same time and the expense of disempowering men. It's funny, um, on social media, a woman described me after I questioned this. Now, I questioned it in a very jovial kind of a way as obviously being you know I mean my appearance it, it goes before me you know bold and and rednecked during the 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 warmer <laughs> the warmer months of the year but um oh you're just another middle-aged gammony blah 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 misogynist but I asked my own missus who is a very strong fiercely independent French woman I said to her do you find it misogynistic that it pisses me off when I switch on a game I'm pissed off because I'm not getting you know, Mark Hughes, I'm not getting Paul Ince, I'm not getting these guys I used to watch, I want to sit down, it's a blokey thing. And again, my fiercely independent, outspoken French woman, Mrs. says, no, it's not misogynistic, I totally get it. You know, it's bloke time, it's your time, like. Yeah. Um, but um, she says, yeah, I, it's strange to see that, to see women. Many of these women whom I don't know who they are, but, um, because I don't watch women's football because I'm a, mis- I'm, I'm a hateful misogynist. Um, the reason I don't watch it, of course, is because I don't have time to watch it. I, I barely have enough time to watch men's football. On women, then, what did you make last week of the veto handed down to Scottish First Minister Nicola Sturgeon by the UK government, saying you're not going to pass your Gender Recognition Act um, changes into law in Scotland, which would allow 16-year-olds self-identify without any medical intervention, and they would only have to be in their new gender for three months. I think this stuff is all meant to come in here, David, so I don't understand why the British government is vetoing Sturgeon. What do you make of it? 
Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a push to bring these kind of things in all over the world, particularly in Western nations uh, for, you know, they, they call it gender equality, which is not about men and women. It's also it extends beyond that to there being any kind of gender and gender transitioning and so on. They want to bring this in. They, they were going to try and bring this in um, in the whole UK under Theresa May when she was prime minister. But then it kind of got... Uh, lost under Boris Johnson because there was all the stuff they were doing with lockdowns and so on and Brexit. And then, um, yeah, Rishi Sunak doesn't seem like he wants to bring it in and has actually uh, gone against Nicola Sturgeon bringing this kind of thing in, um, which I think is a good thing because it's just insane. It's just completely bonkers. But it's being pushed out and rolled out around, you know, Canada and New Zealand as well as in Scotland. And um, yeah, but it's the thing is, it's it would there you'd have two different laws applying to Scotland, which would conflict with each other. And you can't have that because you've got the UK law, which says two years and you have to have a certificate from a doctor. And then you'd have the Scottish law, which says three months and you can just um, you know, decide your own gender when you want with no diagnosis, both applying in the same area in Scotland. So that's sort of impossible to have two different laws conflicting. So someone's either got to you know, repeal the UK law in Scotland or veto this one. So I think they've done the right thing. But but ultimately, you know, all of these parties will want to bring this in eventually all over the UK. So, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if, for example, Keir Starmer gets in. I hope he doesn't. But if he does, uh, then he would just try to bring something like that in maybe for the whole of the UK. He said he's not going to do it now, but, you know, he can change his mind in two or three or four years time, uh, like a lot of people do on these issues. Yeah, no doubt about it. And if I'm right that the level of control exerted by external forces on on our politics. I mean, I, I believe the whole thing is rigged. I've believed this for years. Many of my guests don't agree with me. They think, Richie, it's not as controlled as you think it is. But I think it might be. And if I'm right, this is why they will hand it to, to, to Starmer. For, for Starmer, not only to push that issue, but obviously to push the green agenda. And on the green agenda, before I ask you about this, you are listening to David Curtin, by the way. You, you can find out all you need to find out about the Heritage Party at the website heritageparty.org, heritageparty.org. you find David on, on Twitter as well. Check him out there. He's a very genial man, as you are hearing uh, this evening. He'll uh, engage with you on there, so long as you're polite. He is the founder and leader of the party. On the green agenda... It's it's madness what's happening in London now with low traffic neighbourhoods and emissions and the current mayor of London, uh, Sadiq Khan. Can you explain to our listeners, because there's so much on Twitter and on Facebook and so much of it is misinformation, even, uh, regretfully, from, from the independent media sometimes. What's mm. going on with lockdowns in London to do with uh, cars not being allowed to go down certain streets, David. Can you explain this in, in your own inimitable way for us? Yeah, there's three different things which are being used, three different mechanisms, which are basically part of the same war on cars, uh, part of the Agenda 2030, which wants to get people out of cars and into what they call active transport, which basically means uh, they want as many people to be walking and cycling as possible and taking the bus, but they don't want you to, to use your car. The first one was called low traffic neighbourhoods or LTNs, and they were putting in blockages and zoning boroughs in London. So, 
uh, people lived in a street, in a residential street, and they suddenly found there were all these planters and bollards all over the place, and they couldn't drive out of their neighborhood except through one exit and entrance, or if they drove out some way, they'd get a fine. Um, and it just made life really, really difficult. And there was uproar everywhere. Um, they actually got them overturned in Wandsworth and Harrow and Ealing by so many people going out and protesting, but they still have implemented them in Haringey and Islington and some other London boroughs. Um, and they're, they're, they're in Oxford as well already. Uh, but what Oxford are going to add to it, which has been um, a big, um, uh, there's been lots of attention to these ideas of 15 minute neighborhoods where they want to zone the city and fine cars from driving from one place to another. So it's not just now that you're not, you, you can't get in and out of your own neighborhood. They're going to fine you uh, and control how much you can uh, drive to another part of the city. Um, and it's restrict you to 100 days a year being allowed to drive your car around your own city. Um, and then there's these other things called clean air zones or low emission zones. So the big thing in London at the moment is that there was a, a, a this thing called an ultra low emission zone, where if you had an older car, um, and by that, I mean petrol before 2005 or diesel before 2015, you had to pay £12.50 a day to drive in central London. So the Tories brought that in uh, under Boris Johnson. Sadiq Khan then expanded it to uh, the circular roads. So instead of it just being uh, a couple of hundred thousand people, four million people were affected. And now Sadiq Khan again is expanding it to the whole of Greater London. So all of the eight to nine million people who live in Greater London will have to pay this ULES if they've got a vehicle that's um, you know, not uh, new, <laughs> an old yeah. vehicle. So so that's it. It's basically a war on cars. It's a charge. And if you don't pay the charge, you get a fine. And they just want to make it difficult for people to have cars. I would imagine that, that these initiatives are wildly unpopular. Would I be right in saying that? And if so, yeah. how are they getting away with it? Yeah, well, they have consultations. And in London, they had a consultation on the ULES. Uh, and apparently there was some, uh, a, a lot of people who, who said they were against it got ignored and they weren't uh, counted in the consultation. I think it was something like 65% of people were against it, but they discounted 5,000 opinions. And then so they brought the number down to say only 59% of people are against it. But there's still a big majority against it. People generally don't want it because ordinary people who need to drive to work or, uh, you know, in outer London, there aren't the bus services that you might have in central London. So it's going to have, uh, impact people. You know, if, if this comes in, people will have to pay £72.50 a week just to drive to work or just to, you know, if you're a carer to to go and, you know, care for the people you care for, etc. Um, yeah, at Oxford, uh, with these 15-minute neighbourhoods, it was even more overwhelmingly against. 92% of people in Oxford said they didn't want that. But the thing is with the consultation, um, the, the council and the London mayor, you know, whoever's in charge, they can, if they want, just ignore it. And they said they just ignored the consultation, said, well, we're going to do it anyway. Um, so uh, I think there's going to be a lot of protest. There's a big protest in Oxford in February. There's protests in London or almost every weekend against the low traffic neighbourhoods and against the ULES. And, um, you know, ultimately, we're going to have to vote these people out and vote in people who would uh, not 
not implement these things and let people just have the freedom to drive their cars around their own towns and cities again. It's amazing. Back in March, April 2020, I was talking about climate lockdowns. Um, you know, saying, wouldn't it be funny if they took the principle of COVID lockdowns and applied it to the climate? And I, I, this is not me bragging now because I don't usually have eureka moments. But um, it's been remembered by people. I, I hear a lot from people who say, Richie, you were joking, but but it seems to be to be happening. And this might be only the beginning of it, David. I mean, in the future, I have this horrible feeling that it might not be next year. It might not be five years. But maybe in 10 years, if, God willing, you are still alive and your family and I'm alive and my family is alive, we might be given an allowance of CO2 in terms of the CO2 that we can create through our activity. You might be given a number and you might be, you know, you might go on a holiday or a couple of days to, you might go to Snowdonia and then, you, you know, you've lost some of your carbon allowance. I mean, could it get as crazy as that? Well, they've already got the technology to do that. And we already know this is happening in China. I mean, not so much with carbon credits, but with social media credits. But the same technology can easily be used and applied to give you a carbon score as well as a social credit score. I mean, the words that is already there, they talk about ESG now, environmental, social and governance scores. And um, businesses will, you know, uh, only do business and go give contracts to people who have got... Um, a, a, a high enough number of points on this ESG score. Um, Rishi Sunat's talking about bringing in central bank digital currency, which will be programmable, and um, that will then stop you from spending some of the money that you have on your in your digital government wallet if you have um, overused your carbon credits or allowances. So the technology already exists. They want to bring it in. Um, all we can do is raise awareness of this and try to fight to get people into positions of power who won't implement this and also continue to use cash because that's the one thing they don't like. They want to get rid of cash entirely. And, and if they can do that, then they will bring in digital currency, which will be programmable, like you say. Um, and uh, we have to make sure that doesn't happen because that would be a perpetual nightmare. Final question for today. I suppose it's on Edinburgh last week announcing that it's going to remove meat as an option in schools, in hospitals and in care homes. I'm all for choice, me. I think people living in care homes should be given a choice. They should be given a choice of meat. If they don't like meat, they might want a vegetable or they might be vegan, so they should have a vegan diet. But it's the it, it just happened in Edinburgh with like very little fanfare. There's an acceptance, and I suppose my final question to you now is, are you as concerned as I am about how dangerous that is? Like, these things just happen, and then we're on to the next thing. And I'm like, hold on a second there. You know, where are our Edinburgh brothers and sisters who think this is mad and know the damage this is going to do to farming, not only in that country but in the UK? We need to make more of a fuss somehow, don't we, when these things well, happen? 
They tried to bring it in in Brighton uh, about three years ago because Brighton had a green council um, and it didn't work very well because all the bin, the bin men said, no, we're not having this. We want our meat. And they wanted meat free Mondays. It didn't take off. There was such a protest about it. They didn't do it. Um, so, um, you know, maybe when they bring it in, I think there will be a protest from actual real working men who want, you know, want some meat at lunchtime in the canteen who, who don't get a voice, you know, ordinary work working men who, who drive vehicles, whatever. They don't get a voice in the media. It's all the kind of the lovies who like, you know, the Greta Thunberg minions who go around like uh, with pictures of her in their profile. They're the ones who get the media attention. But I think there probably is a huge amount of resistance to it. But those people don't get a voice. They're no. silenced. They're cancelled. Um, but there will be a lot of people who I think are really unhappy about this. And yeah, it shouldn't be happening. There should be a choice, of course. No doubt. I think the independent media has never had it so good in terms of more and more people switching on because they're tired of it. And that's no bad thing. Folks, you can find out all you need to know about the Heritage Party by going to heritageparty.org. You've been listening to the founder and leader of the party, David Curtin. Great pleasure to have you back today, David. I look forward to the next time. Great. Thanks, Richie. You're very welcome. Uh, David, of course, former a member of the London Assembly and uh, a teacher as well to boot. Clever guy. Nice to have him back on the programme. Three minutes to the top of the hour. What am I going to do now? I'm going to read your comments is what I'm going to do now. No producer shouting at me. <laughs> do the comments, Richie. Okay, I'll do the comments then. I will do the comments. Keep them coming in. RichieAllen.co.uk. Comment live. Menu bar. Very simple. We don't collect. We don't collate. We don't do anything with your data. We don't. It's very important that you know that. So there's no harm in signing up, even if you use a name. Just use a name. Billy Bragg, Sammy Smith, Michael Murphy, whatever, right? Um, And get involved in chat. Hi to Al, Base Ninja, by the way. Welcome back, buddy. You've been on your travels working in uh, Eastern Europe. Good to have you back listening to the programme and joining in with the chat. Alan, top man. Um, on this, Craig says, if you book a rail ticket online, the receipt will tell you how much CO2 the journey uses. And I can't believe I forgot to mention this, Craig. You are right. I took a train, not this weekend gone, but the previous weekend for the first time in a long time. I took a train down to London. And yes, you're absolutely spot on. I did book it online with the train line app, I think, because it's handy, right? And it did tell me how much CO2 the, the journey would use and it kind of congratulated me suggesting that far less CO2 was being used by the nature of the fact that I took the train than if I'd taken the car I was going to take the car but three and a half hours I don't normally mind the drive I like a long drive but I thought no I'll just get the train because obviously I can have a couple of cold beers and it's less stressful it turned out to be very stressful because the return journey was held up by cancellations and all of that. But anyway, you can't be a hypocrite. I'm a trade unionist, so I didn't complain. No, no. No, I did not complain. I'm like, well, you can't support the union unionised workers and then bitch about it when there are no crew because there's a safety issue. You've got to be consistent. Chris Morell says, according to Twitter posts, the Reform Party chief... Rice has revealed himself to be a pro-vax mandate, T-W-A-T. 
Thanks for that, Chris. Uh, Faisal came back to say they could reduce the amount of cars on the road if public transport was cheaper. Funny how none of the green types suggest or campaign for that. Excellent point. <clears throat> Excuse me, that is an excellent point by Faisal. You don't often hear a green candidate ca- uh, calling for the nationalisation of the transport system. You don't get that, do you? Hi to Joanna. Hi, Joanna. I wish I was in my late 80s. I really don't want to see the future coming. Every aspect of today's life is threatened. Convid was a test, only a test for us all, and people fell for it so easily. I'm Polish, says Joanna. People have no idea what communism is, and you wonder how the Holocaust happened. Exactly the same copy-paste strategy. I've lost faith in people, but thanks to you, Richie, and to my Welsh family, I'm still here fighting Lots of love to you and the awakened, the awakened listeners. Thanks, Joanna. You're very kind. It's good to know that. I mean, I'm here for you every day. Well, Monday to Thursday, anyway. I'm here Monday to Thursday at five o'clock. Herself came on to say all of this 15-minute cities, no car regions, etc. is directly out of the UN Sustainable Development Playbook, first brought to wide attention by the Great Rosa Choir, or is it Choir, author of Behind the Green Mask. She died suddenly of a fast-acting cancer just before they rolled out the scam. Thank you. And Diane Hughes, Diane, I will be in touch, by the way. I wasn't saying that the other day. Diane, who is a transsexual woman, says, Richie, gender reassignment is medicalised for a good reason, to avoid mistakes. We need to talk about this again. Um, Al, the base ninja who's been in Eastern Europe, that mad cranky fish woman has lost her mind. Women like men need their spaces, especially if a woman is a victim of a serious assault, sexual assault. No bloke in a dress is, a woman says, Alan. Vicky says not all women want social equality, definitely not at the expense of men. I did ask myself the question. I, I genuinely did. Now, I've not just suddenly become woke. I'm as far from woke as you, you can get. But I did ask myself the question. If I had a chip on my shoulder, when I was getting annoyed by switching on the radio and hearing the presenter say, well, I've got an Arsenal fan now and I've got a Man United fan. And more often than not, it was two women. I mean, maybe one of the women maybe, maybe has a podcast about football and the other woman is, is, is a fan, a season ticket holder. And, and I began to say to myself, well, well women are entitled you know, to have their say on football, aren't they? And I've grown up around women that were diehard fans of of football and football teams. And an aunt of mine, Anne, is a big Arsenal fan, very knowledgeable on football, has been following the game since she was uh, in her teens. So I, I don't want women not to be involved, but I, I'm, the, I'm probably the worst guy to explain it and try to find the appropriate words without falling foul of my own inability to do that and, and then not making myself totally understood. There is that blokey thing you know, going to the cricket to watch the T20. Love going with the lads. With the lads. With the lads, you know. That's what it is. And, yeah, it's it's funny that. To watch the Chelsea-Liverpool game on BT Sport on Saturday lunchtime and to hear the, the, the co-commentator was a woman. I don't know who she is. So I suppose the question you throw back at me then is, was she any good? Well, she wasn't crap. But I don't want to hear. It's funny, isn't it? Three minutes past the hour. 
You misogynistic old fecker, Richie. That's what it is. You, you just, you just, the mask has slipped off you. That's what it is. You've been found out now. No, I just like blokey spaces, really, I suppose. Um, Marcus says, Richie, did you hear Jeremy Vine? He had a, fo- a phone in on Friday. Kids dropping like flies on school fields. Is that right? I, I, I wasn't aware of that. Which programme, Marcus? Was it the early morning television programme on Channel 5 or was it his lunchtime radio programme for BBC2? Because I'd like to go back and have a listen to that. How interesting. Did he really now? Did he prompt it? Like, was it an item that was scheduled for the programme or was it that people phoned in and brought it up? I'd like to hear that. Hi to Angela. How are you, Angela? Richie, hoping to hear lots of sense from your guests today. People are saying that the protest outside the BBC on Saturday was suspicious because it was allowed. And Angela says, I would like to hear what David Curtin uh, would have to say on that, on how it went. It looked brilliant uh, to me. Thank you, Angela. I didn't get the time. I could have brought that up, funnily enough. It did look very well attended, didn't it, that uh, that protest? And, and let's not forget, that event was, was held because it was to give a voice to the, to, to the COVID jab injured, let's not call it a vaccine. Yes, it looked very well attended. But sure, the BBC played these games last year and the year before when tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people descended on Trafalgar Square and Leicester Square. Enormous crowds. Enormous crowds. And they barely got a mention on the BBC and on the rare occasion they did get a mention, they grossly understated the numbers. You know, 3,000 or, or, or hundreds of people. When you could tell, you know, people put drones up, you could see. You know, when RT was still available on your satellite provider of choice before they banned RT RT would cover this stuff and send a drone up with a camera and you could see the people stretched back for, well for miles really five and a half minutes past the hour, your Richie Allen show broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk Fab Radio 2 in Manchester, it's also on the TuneIn app too. Hi there, it's Eamon here from Immunex 365 and I just want to give you a quick update for the new year We are now in the depths of winter, and due to the lack of adequate sunlight, it is also the time when those of us living in the Northern Hemisphere have the lowest levels of vitamin D in our bodies. If there is ever a time to give your immune system a boost, it is probably now. Also, I am really happy to be able to tell you that not only have we been able to substantially reduce the price of Immunex 365 since we launched in October last, but we can now supply directly to Ireland. For details of how each of the supplements in Immunex 365 are formulated to work together and protect you from colds, flu and other respiratory diseases this winter, just head over to immunex365.co.uk. I am going to be at Comedy Podcast Live from the 27th to the 29th of January at the Kegworth Hotel in Derby. It'll be me and a bunch of other brilliant free speakers who think what they want to think, say what they think, and really don't give two what anyone else has got to say about it. So do come along and join us. Phil Zimmerman will be there, Andrew Lawrence, Alistair Williams, Right Said Fred. I can promise you a few things. You will laugh, you will feel better, and you will realise that you're not alone. So do grab your tickets, comedypodcastlive.com, and I very much look forward to spending time with you there. 
ask not what the BBG can do for you, but what you can do for the BBG. Support the Richie Allen Show now at richieallen.co.uk. Yes, please do support this programme if you can. It airs Monday to Thursday at 5 o'clock UK time. It is produced, edited and introduced by me. There is very little help. I don't have any help. I produce it. I edit it. The audio, the monologues, the guest sourcing, all of that. And of course, Sunday Morning Melodies every Sunday at 10 o'clock UK time. Tony Gosling, formerly of the BBC these days, the brilliant Not the BCFM Politics Show live out of Bristol every Friday. He'll be with us in a moment. Can't wait to speak to him again. A UK number one for you 2 in 1988 from the Rattle and Tom album. That's Desire, which the, the riff is robbed from the Stooges song, 1969, I think. Is that right? Music aficionados. Am I right to say that? It's a brilliant riff by the edge, but it's heavily borrowing from the Stooges, 1969. Anyway, it's 11 minutes past the hour. You are with your Richie Allen show. There's none like it. This is your Richie Allen show, and there's no other like it on planet Earth. Wasn't David Curtin brilliant? If you missed anything on the programme, you can get it via Podomatic.com. It's richieallen.podomatic.com. It's on iTunes. It's on Podbean and all the blooming rest of it. My guest this hour needs no introduction whatsoever. He's been a staple of my programmes for many moons. These days, he presents the brilliant Not the BCFM Politics programme out of Bristol every Friday at five o'clock. He once worked for the BBC with distinction, did the man, and he's written some brilliant books, including The Siege of Heaven and The Traitors of Arnhem. It's a great pleasure to welcome for the first time in 2023, the one and only Tony Gosling. Welcome back, T. How are you? (laughs) Well, you you do a terrific job in talking me up, Richie. Thank you. My show... What I try and do is to roll all into one, all of the good old investigative documentaries that we used to get on the TV and the radio back in the 1980s and the 1990s. I'm talking about things like the Cook Report, World in Action, Duncan Campbell's investigation into secret societies and secret cabinet committees, everything into one. And I just try and make space for every, you know, us to push forward into all of these areas that we need to know so much more about today, particularly since our governments now seem to be not only turning on, you know, towards war with various foreign powers, but turning on us too. I mean, that just wasn't the case, I don't think, back in the 80s and 90s. The government wasn't at war with its own people, except maybe the free party ravers in the 90s. Uh, but, you know, we need to understand exactly, you know, who they are, who's coming for us, what they're going to do next. And that's what I try to do every week, Richie. You are a master of the long form interview, which friends of mine back home, former radio presenters, say they regret. Some of them are still in radio 
and they regret that they get six, seven minutes with a guest. It's often kind of hostile. They wish they, they had it like, like you have it and I have it. And of course, I tell them, well, why don't you get out then and go and do what it is that we do? But no, you do. Master of the long form interview. What a weekend for Tory Slee's stories to emerge. We'll talk in a few minutes, no doubt about the, the BBC. I'm talking to the right man, Tony Gosling, and Richard Sharp and Boris Johnson. But before that, let's talk a little bit about the former Chancellor of the Exchequer, these days the chairman of the Conservative Party, Nadim Zahawi, uh, calls for an investigation into whether or not he had to pay a penalty to HMRC for messing up his tax return to the tune of £3.7 million. What's going on here, Tony? Well, as far as I understand it, he's already paid the penalty. He's paid paid it it in secret. And I think it was whilst he was Chancellor, that is to say, I think it was the August, September this year. And so, you know, obviously he's tried to keep all this. I mean, the hat's off to the independent, uh, you know, which is basically online these days. They have done this this investigation. Uh, they, they initially dug up this information from inside sources at HMRC that Zahawi was under investigation last year. Uh, or, yeah, it would be probably July last year, I think, they first broke the story. But, you know, of course he's got to go. I mean, this is unbelievable. This is the guy who's in charge of the Treasury and the tax affairs, as he was at the time. And he himself has been dodging tax to the tune of, well, there are various figures around. But the one that even the BBC are now saying is that most likely is around £5 million fine he's paid. Now, the question here is, he's been dodging tax. He should have been arrested and put on trial and sent to prison. What's happened is, because he's Chancellor, I imagine, or because of his, his, his connections in the uh, city establishment, he's managed to wangle it so that he doesn't uh, go to prison like the rest of us would do if we committed that sort of fraud uh, and uh, tax evasion. Uh, and what he's done is he's done, he's done an out-of-court settlement with the HMRC uh, in order that he doesn't have to go to court, etc. So, you know, this is, it, it, it is incredible to, that, that Sunak has not sacked him. Now, this has all come out. What I think is going on, what's really behind this, and the reason Sunak hasn't sacked him, is because Labour is getting in in 2024. And Sunak's job from Goldman Sachs, that's his, you know, his real loyalties, not to the British people or the Tory party, it's to Goldman Sachs. He is trying to, as part of this, destroy the Tory party's credibility, make it look ridiculous and awful. And so it all, it's all grist to the mill for Starmer. So Starmer stands a much better chance, even though he's a wooden, well, I mean, I wouldn't say moron. I mean, he reminds me of Tommy Cooper uh, in his, <laughs> you know, the comedian in his demeanor. But I think they're just, this is, this is Sunak making it easier and easier by the day for Starmer to get in in 2024. Just like that. I, I'm the worst impressionist ah. in the world. In the world. Now, is there any chance... Th- yeah, that's, that's much better. Is there any chance that the media could bring down this government and we could be into a general election in the spring? No, no. Uh, but we may get... it. It's possible that uh, someone else may... Uh, I mean, OK, so we, we're in a very bizarre situation, aren't we? With all this hoo-ha about Partygate. Remember, it was Sunak that launched the... Uh, attack on Boris Johnson that got Boris, you know, I'm no fan of the Tories or of Boris, but it was quite clearly a coup against Boris. So you look at the approval ratings 
Um, when Sunak and Truss were standing against, uh, you know, against each other for the Tory leadership, they were both roughly around about 20% approval ratings. And that's amongst potential Tory voters. That's including uh, the Red Wall voters up north that voted, you know, because of Brexit and Corbyn's failures over Brexit, voted Tory uh, in 2019, right? So these people were, their approval ratings, uh, I think Truss was 19%. And, and uh, Sunak was 21%, something like that. But all the through all this party gate stuff, uh, Boris Johnson's rating was hovering around 50, 60%, right? So by getting rid of Boris, the Tories have basically thrown the next election. Uh, so, I mean, I just cannot, I, mean, I, cannot, I can understand because this is the city running the show, the pantomime, to make sure Starmer stands a better chance of getting in next year. I agree. Yeah, I, I, I do like a good argument with you, but I agree. These guys are not really in charge. <laughs> They're being manipulated and the, the, the next government yeah. is being manipulated in. We, we'll talk about Johnson. Well, we'll talk about him now. I mean, what, what, again, what a great story for the journalists who broke it in the Sunday Times. But he is helped to... Rich, Richard Sharp helps Boris Johnson find a guarantor to help him get a loan up to £800,000. Very shortly thereafter, Boris Johnson recommends that um, Sharp gets the top job at the BBC and he gets it. They're going to great lengths to say that, you know, there's nothing to see here. It's just one of those things. Sharp has even written to to the employees at the BBC to say, look, this is all distraction. Don't pay any attention to it. But, But of course, it smells, doesn't it? To say the least. Well, look, okay, so as far okay, again, as far as I understand, this guy, his role was to put Johnson in touch with some other people that arranged the loan. He yeah. didn't do it himself, as far as I Right, so I look at this, I'm standing a step back from this again. I sound like I'm trying to defend Boris Johnson. I'm not. I'm trying to read what's really going on because I know Boris Johnson and people like him are not really in charge. So uh, I think what the people who are in charge are the ones who are very close to MI5. MI5, uh, and one of the things they've been doing over the last 30, 40 years, is building up a massive surveillance database. That is profiles of everybody, but particularly they concentrate on major politicians like Johnson, right? So what's Johnson been doing over the last few days? He's just come back from Ukraine. He's been chit-chatting with Zelensky. And I wonder whether Boris just didn't agree to do something they were trying to get him to do with Zelensky. And so they've just released this information now. Now, you have to understand this war with Russia is already, I mean, Lavrov has today been, been come out and said, look, actually, we realize now that this is just a war with NATO. NATO is playing games and pretending that we know we're fighting you. Uh, and so maybe this is what Johnson was over there to do some sort of uh, deal to do with the British Armed Forces, NATO, and, um, and Zelensky. So, uh, I, I mean, I'd also, in the background to all of this, you've got all these little releases of, of Biden, you know, leaving, uh, leaving um, uh, confidential documents, uh, <laughs> military intelligence stuff in his Corvette, and whatever, yeah, in yeah. a locked garage. And, and, you know, I think a lot of this stuff, the pressure that we're seeing on our politicians, uh, you know, as if they're ours, you know, this is the military-industrial complex basically blackmailing people like Johnson and Biden to go down the route towards war with Russia because that's what they want. They want to put as much pressure on Putin. They've got a regime change in mind for Russia, even though that sounds insane. Of course, 
if that is the case, and we know there's a thing called Oper- Operation Beluga in order to basically discredit Russia within, uh, within, within uh, discredit Putin within and outside Russia. And the, what they're trying to do, I think, is, is just put more and more pressure on the Russians. They, they, they understand. And this is why, of course, the Russians have gone into Ukraine. It's because they know that NATO is push, push, pushing the whole time. These, these uh, Leopard 2 tanks, uh, that the, it looks like the Germans have said no, but it looks like the Leopards from Poland are going to go uh, over to uh, help Zelensky. Now, this is, you know, this isn't heavy weapons. This is armour. This is, you know, that basically on the ground, are pretty much as big as it gets in terms of what the West is prepared to do to help Zelensky. And uh, so I think that that's what both of these things with Boris Johnson and Biden are about. It's about putting all sorts of blackmail pressure on the on the politicians and to go along with a uh, inch inch by inch a ratchet towards all out war with Russia, because these people are maniacs. And I, I honestly believe that. Can I just point out, and it's 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 you're the guest, so I'm not going to get into this in great depth. Tony and, and I have a fundamental disagreement, and I don't know that I'm right. I've never been arrogant. Neither is Tony. That's why I love speaking with Tony. I have come to believe that even the Kremlin and even the 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 the, the Chinese are manipulated by the same people in the background. Tony fundamentally disagrees with this, and he makes a brilliant argument against it. But just, I just want to point this out because listeners might be saying, oh, Richie, have a go then because you believe that Russia is controlled and that this war is meant to bring about this Hunger Games society. Yes, I do. That's what I believe. We're, we're here to listen to Tony. I just want to point that out, that I see it a little bit differently uh, than, than he does. But we don't need to get into that because it's well, very interesting you what you're why saying. I, can I tell you why I think you're wrong? Go ahead, yeah. <laughs> because Freemasonry, right, this is one of the major uh, things in the West. And I mean, if we're looking at our enemy, as I was talking about at the start, who they really are, I think we're, we, you know, this is at the center of the opposition is a kind of satanic cult. But there are all sorts of other things around it. Freemasonry is one of them. Freemasonry was behind the coup in 2014 in Ukraine. Yes. Uh, Viktor Pinchuk, uh, Yatsenyuk are all top Masons in uh, and, and that was basically organized um, by the CIA, by the Victorian Ireland, organizing yeah. it. So, yeah. So the, the Russians have a different approach to Freemasonry. None of this stuff is really spoken about at all. They, uh, the Russian Orthodox Church, and this is one of the reasons, in the Greeks as well, actually, many of the Orthodox churches have something called the oath crime, where they simply refuse to have anybody involved in the church who is a Mason. So if you are found out to be a Freemason and in the Orthodox Church, this doesn't count, by the way, in the new Orthodox Church that Zelensky's created in Ukraine. The, what you, you are approached, you're told you must confess. Uh, and since, you, since we found out you're a Freemason, you've either got to renounce your vows to the Masons or you're going to have to leave the church. Now, this is called what they call the oath crime. And I think ultimately there's two different forms here. We've got a form of government which allows Freemasonry, allows cults into it, uh, which is our form and the Russians, which don't. So I think the Chinese, by the way, I, I would agree with you. A lot of China, I think, is controlled in a similar way to the US is controlled. But I think the Russians have been at this game hundreds of years. And I think they know exactly what they're up against. And I do believe that the Kremlin is, okay, so they're gangsters. I'm not pretending they're not gangsters. They're gangsters, but yeah. They're the top gangsters. They're, they're the top gangsters in Russia. They're not allowing the oligarchs to really kick and push them around like we allow 
British oligarchs, we allow the finance capitalists in Britain to push everybody around. There's this kind of biblical thing almost over here, which is called free trade. That means that anything in any country in the West can be bought up by the banksters and shut down, whether it's media, political parties, politics, anything. The finance rules, it's like a kind of religion of money over here. Whereas the Russians, I believe that the Russian military, the Russian Kremlin, is separate and separated from the finance control and the and the uh, the gangsters, uh, you know, the oligarchs over in Russia are a separate entity. And they know that if they get their fingers involved in the Kremlin, they're going to get them chopped off or, and they'll either be jailed or sent, you know, like Kordakovsky or someone like that to Switzerland. You make a good argument against them, and I'm not being churlish now when I say I still see it differently, but I'm not going to spend time laying out why I disagree with that because we okay. will we'll do we'll we'll do it again in future shows. You're listening to Tony Gosling, thisweek.org.uk, Bilderberg.org, broadcaster, writer. Check out his books, his brilliant books. I'll mention them again before we finish uh, the, the the program. I, I wanted to talk to you about this this kind of World Economic Forum kind of came and went, didn't it, Tony? I also want to ask oh, you about yeah. Prince Andrew in a moment. But Blair was there again and getting a lot of coverage and um, I don't know whether we should spend much time on this, but it's important because it's, it's, it's a route they want to take humanity. He's calling very strongly again for an infrastructure, a global infrastructure to be designed or laid out to monitor who has been jabbed and when and for what and what they've not been jabbed for. It's very important. These vaccines coming down the line will be multiple shots. So you've got to have, for reasons to do with the healthcare more generally, but for a pandemic or for vaccines, you've got to have a digital infrastructure. And many countries don't have that, but they need to have it. What, what, what is this World Economic Forum? In the last two years, I've... I've oh, seen, look, okay. What is it? Okay, the, the, the West, the World Economic Forum, well, really, it's the central point for a... Uh, I mean, at least it's in public. You know, you can go as a reporter up to the World Economic Forum. You can wander around. You can, as as they did, of course, last week, chit-chat with Greta Thunberg, even if she doesn't want to reply. Uh, you can also meet people like John Kerry wandering around. Uh, and it is it is the apex, really, of the world government pro- project. I, I, last week, I was did a, I did a program with Greg Lance Watkins, who told me an amazing story about how he got into... Berlin in the 1990s into one of the libraries and got the only copy available uh, and he did photocopied it and well and he also got it translated into English of the Nazis 1942 plan for what they called the Europäischen Wirtschaftsgemeinschaft which translates very easily into English as as the European Economic Community now this was the this was the mid-war point that the, the Nazis realized they'd occupied most of Europe and, and they needed to have some kind of sense of autonomy for the individual countries like France, but also they wanted Germany to control it uh, from the top. Uh, so they wanted to have a kind of illusion of, uh, of, of democracy in a way, where people felt that they had some kind of say. And, and so the World Economic Forum, I think, is in, in a way is a kind of parallel to this. So you get people swapping from the Bilderbergers, for example, to the World Economic Forum same sort of people will appear at both. Blair, obviously, is someone who's been to both. In fact, he was basically interviewed by the Bilderbergers in 1992, I think it was, 93 maybe, before he became um, Labour leader. And um, whilst we're on the topic, the Bilderbergers are meeting 17th of May this year in Lisbon, uh, something which we uncovered, a group of us journalists, just before Christmas. 
Uh, and so I'm hoping to go down there for that uh, in May. Uh, but yeah, the World Economic Forum is where the fascist international in the West meets. And quite obviously, I mean, you mentioned Blair. I mean, he's pushing this fascist system, basically, which is a profiling of everybody, a social credit system, really, for the West. Uh, and you'd expect that kind of thing from him. He should, of course, be behind bars. Uh, he, he should be nowhere near. He's, he, he, oper- he operates against the interests of the public. So uh, that, that's what I think the WEF is. Starmer, um, when I looked at, at what he was saying, he's clearly pitching uh, to get support from all the media, WEF media people, the banksters, etc., uh, for his election bid next year. And he'll probably win. Let me hear and now say, I think now Starmer has done this bending over backwards for the World Economic Forum last week, saying how much he, he thinks that the, uh, the, the bankers uh, need, to, need to be listened to rather than the people. I mean, he's, he even said, didn't he, so I don't know if you saw that, to Emily Maitlis, uh, he said, uh, well, I actually prefer the World Economic Forum to Westminster. Yeah. It's so much better, so much easier. Less, I mean, you know, th- what he's saying is he doesn't oppose the Tories. He doesn't want to oppose the Tories. He just wants to be lovey and friendly with the powerful people and do what they say. Now, that's not uh, the leader of Her Majesty's loyal opposition. That's a toady. Yeah, that's a sycophant. And that's what he is. I mean, he's just going to do whatever they tell him to do. And he's trying to signal to them, Richie, in Davos. I think he did it very successfully, that I will do whatever you tell me. Basically, that's it. The, uh, your, your, your plan for a great reset, I'm your man, basically. Yeah, you can trust it yeah. in my hands. Yeah, yeah. And as for Blair... I, I, I would finish on Blair by saying, and I've never been a religious type, Blair is demonic. <laughs> He's demonic, Blair, isn't he? I mean, he is well, demonic. I'll tell, tell you a little story about Blair, because we were filming for a Russian documentary in London years ago outside the headquarters of the Supreme Council in St. James in London. And we were, we were skipping around various Masonic venues in, in London with this Russian film crew. I think you can still find the film out there somewhere, documentary out there somewhere. Uh, But uh, we were stood outside the headquarters of the Supreme Council just doing a bit of filming. It says, Supreme Council, ring once or something. It doesn't tell you much about it on the outside. And uh, Duke Street, St. James is. And um, as we were stood there filming, these guys turned up with some sandwiches, right? Two guys with two trays of sandwiches. They were trying to get in, but we were filming. And they said, oh, you know, obviously they need to get in. We need to get out of the way. And, I, and before I got out of the way, I had the presence of mind to say, but what is this building? What, what goes on in here? And he said, oh, this is the headquarters of the English branch of the Rosicrucians. Okay. All right. All right. Very interesting. Well, the Rosicrucians, if you look them up, were proto-Satanists. Okay. So that, that aspect of it, uh, I mean, and Blair was, as I, as I understand it, it's very difficult to these things out. I think it was one of Chris Everard's programs. He showed some evidence of this, of Blair being a Rosicrucian. So this is basically, he comes across as a Christian, but actually he's a Satanist. So that, I think, is where Blair is coming from. And I don't think you'd be a million miles away from the truth to call him demonic. Yeah, he looks it. Let me read this comment from Craig, because Craig is a student of the, 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 the societies, as you are. He says, Tony is wrong, at least in part. The Masons recognise that some of the oldest lodges are in China. In his 100th anniversary speech, 
President Xi said that the Communist Party had brought order to chaos, ordo ab chao, under the all-seeing eye of communism. Let, 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 let me just finish. Craig writes, the Mason's Pyramid is a moon over a sun over the earth, a lunar solar calendar, just like China's. There is an old photo of a smiling Mao sat opposite a Rothschild after the revolution. Was that just a national leader sat opposite a banker, or was it a lodge member sat opposite a grand lodge master, asks Craig. Well, that's a, that's a great comment, and I agree. I think that these occult organizations, the cults, particularly China and the United States, have been very close for many years. That's There's the, um, the man, I think it was the film, the um, Michael Caine film, A Man Who Would Be King, I think, where he goes over to the Himalayas and he does some Masonic sign and they recognize him and they, they, they think he's a god. You know, these cults have been all over the world, I think right back to ancient times, like 1000 B.C., I honestly think that, you know, it goes back that far. But the Russians are, I think, a bit of a different picture. You know, I don't think the, the, the modern Russia is buys into these cults. And I think it's one step removed. So, you know, that's, that's the China, definitely. I mean, if you go back to um, Mao, uh, he was funded by Yale University. His bookshop network uh, back in the 1920s, look it up. It's even in the um, Yale University magazine from about 1970 or something. Is it now? Brilliant article. Hey, all, uh, hey, all Tony. about how Mao was funded by Yale. How he was funded by Yale. I can't not mention that the Conservative Party MP, Bob Seeley, from the Isle of Wight, he's been doing the media today calling for, you know, a more... Kind of calling for a an investigation into Chinese links to British universities and Chinese influence on British universities. Is Bob Seeley right, or is this just China bashing? Well, look. Uh, okay, so I mean, in Bristol, our, we've got absolute. Well, I don't know how many thousand we've got. We've got massive tower blocks uh, for student accommodation, just full of Chinese students. Wow. Uh, that's because the university gets double the fees for the international students than it does for the domestic students. And so uh, in order to boost their revenue, of course, they're now businesses, these universities are trying to bring in as many international students as they can. Uh, you know, of course China is spying. In my own personal um, experience, I've known of uh, almost certainly one a high-tech business which had a Chinese woman come in, befriend and become the girlfriend of the boss, who the boss was then found dead on his balcony, fallen down off his balcony a few months later. And another another guy who was extremely dodgy then tried to take the, the company over and take all the intellectual property. Look, the Chinese are very active. And, of course, the real fight is going on around high-tech stuff. So anything to do with industry. I mean, wasn't it fascinating to see that battery company collapse the yes, other day? Yes, yes. Did, did you follow that, Richard? Yeah, I, I read about it over it the weekend. British Vault or something. Yeah, yeah. This is because Britain is not allowed to have high technology. Some, A few areas maybe to do with related to the military, we can. But nothing which is going to actually power Britain out of a depression, recession or anything like that and to give us jobs mass jobs again we're never going to be allowed to do that again that's just been decided from on high by the mark carnies of this world you know the whoever it is i think isn't it called the g30 over in canada yeah which are the states which is the executive committee of global capitalism you can probably look that up but it carnies on it you know 
the rest of them are on it. And I get, even get emails once a month from them. You know, I didn't even ask for them. They, I don't know, they must have realised that I, I was onto them and they started sending me these emails. Uh, but that, that's who decides which countries are going to be allowed to thrive. Now, obviously, if you're obedient, like somewhere like Sweden, uh, which is to the New World Order, so, for example, with you know, lots of um, uh, getting rid of cash, all these various things, if the, if the country starts to go down that road, then you will find suddenly things start working for you. And that's what works, I think. That's the way it works in the West. Again, I would say the Russians have seen how it works. They know exactly what's going on over here. And they're saying we want nothing to do with this fascist-style system, this modern fascism, where you get a handful of people at the top involved in the city of London, Wall Street, you know, Frankfurt, the Eurozone, uh, uh, deciding absolutely everything. And they will decide where the investment goes and where it doesn't go. And it ain't going to Britain, that's for sure. Not going to Britain. Let me read a couple of more comments. These are supporting um, Tony's perspective. Christine is listening with great interest to this. How are you doing, Christine? Richie, I agree with Tony. Look at the Catholic Church. Freemasonry has infiltrated it. Uh, infiltrated Andrew and the Catholic Church, in my opinion. The Pope has gone from answering to God to answering to the globalists and governments and doing their bidding for them. That's Christine. Really good point that. On veganism, and this is from earlier on, but I want to read this. Russ says, I wanted to mention that the vegan movement has been co-opted by the environmental folks. The real old school vegan movement isn't about the climate and CO2. It's only about animal ethics. The fake vegan stuff from the World Economic Forum and from Bill Gates is not what us old timers relate to at all. That's a brilliant point, that. That's a very good point about veganism. Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, I think there is this pantheistic idea out there, which is, I mean, it's under the surface of a lot. I mean, when I was back, back in the 1990s, I was involved in organizing these uh, big land occupations, which were great fun. Mass trespasses, actually occupations. So we would take over a big piece of land. We did, did next to Wandsworth Bridge in London. We had it for six months. We had a load of people coming down, building houses on there, temporary houses, wooden ones, living there, working in London from their little squatted temporary. It was brilliant fun. And that, of course, was in the run-up to the 1997 election, which Blair won. What we're seeing now is this environmental root movement. And we've just seen this ridiculous court case a uh, week before last, I think it was now, uh, where some, the High Court has awarded some hedge fund incomer in, on Dartmoor the ability to uh, stop anybody camping on his land, even though the whole of Dartmoor is allowed, you're allowed to wild camp out on Dartmoor, no problem. And he's managed to change that. So this is a provocation. What's happened, of course, is all these Greens, environmentalists, and I have, I'm one of them, basically, are going and protesting now. But this is all to help Starmer next year. It happened exactly the same in the mid-1990s with our The Land Is Ours group, back in uh, which was George Monbiot founded, back in 1995-96, in the run-up to the 97 election. All this, you know, the right to roam stuff, which is really important. But isn't it funny? how it all just starts to happen and it all comes out just ready for Labour to get re-elected. And of course, all Labour needs to do is take on some of these policies and loads more people are going to vote for them. So I see a lot of this as construed and constructed deliberately, much of which I you know, I totally agree. That everyone, you know, this is, Earth is a free gift to mankind. How, why should some landowner that's never even walked on a piece of land be, be able to come over to you and say, no, you're not allowed to spend the night there, uh, disappear or I'm going to call the cops, you know. This is this is this earth is for everybody. But these injustices, I think, are deliberately set up to allow 
situations like, you know, Starmer to come out and say, oh, I'm all for the right to roam, this kind of thing, in the route to next year's election. Very quick question, because time is flying by, as it always does. It's 19 minutes to the top of the hour. Very quick question, because I want to go, go in a slightly different direction then. Do you believe in private property? Well, yes, of course, to a certain extent. But, you know, when you look at somebody like um, the Duke of Westminster, uh, got, I mean, or the National Trust, the massive amount of land they own, uh, they, that is not, I don't see that in any way as the same uh, as something which, say, for example, someone has made with their own hands. I don't know, you, you might design and make a kit-built car. That's yours. But the land, the earth, is not the same thing. No. We all need a bit of it. And, I, you know, I, I'm absolutely, you know, I go, I go back actually to people like the Irish Land League, Richie. I'm sure you're familiar yeah, with that. Yeah, of them. course, absolutely. And they were, they were just suffering under the awful situation where they had the absentee landowners. Many of them were actually not even in Ireland. They were just living it up in London. Yeah. And they would send their factors round to extract the rents from people. I actually think, we, you know, in, in, a, in the world where, I mean, I still have these sort of ideals that we should have a world where nobody pays rent, where everybody has got enough space to live. And that's one of the major problems, I think, with the economy here in the West, particularly in Britain, is rents and mortgages are killing people. They're crippling people. That's why, you know, if you were to halve the rents of all the nurses and, the, you know, the police and fire people or whatever, suddenly you wouldn't have to give them a pay rise. So much of people's income is going on overheads, isn't it? I mean, it's going on mostly on rent and mortgages now. It's going on things like electricity, gas, the energy companies are ratcheting up the prices, price fixing like this. And there's nobody actually taking any, uh, nobody holding the line at all on that. So, yes, I do believe in private property. Of course I do. But I think when it comes to the earth, the land, in, no. When it comes to the seashore, no. When it comes to the mountains, no. You know, this is a free gift to everybody and we need to learn to share it. Amen. Folks, um, we've got Tony for five more minutes. Uh, I'm going to do this today. You're not doing this. Look, he, he was good enough to give me these books, The Siege of Heaven, The Traitors of Arnhem. Go to thisweek.org.uk. Go to Bilderberg.org. Go to Amazon online. Pick up one of Tony's books, particularly if you want to learn about the occult since the English Civil War, the influence in this country. These are terrific books. They really are, because I have them here. They're actually to the left of me here in the studio. I'll take a photograph and put it online. I'll show you the books. Uh, but do check them out. Listen to them every Friday at 5 o'clock. The man is brilliant. Listen to this uh, on thisweek.org.uk, not the BCFM politics show. We've had a really good question from Michael. I don't think Michael is necessarily agreeing with me. But he says, one bit of evidence that these countries are all in it together against us, that's the, the great us, the people, is the Antarctic Treaty. If they were not together, they wouldn't have all signed it. Do you want to do it? Because you've got a brain the size of the moon. Mine is only the size of an orange. Do you want to do um, the Antarctic Treaty and remind our listeners? Well, I don't know anything about it, I'm afraid. Sorry, to have a brain the size of a planet. Thank so I know God. About that. Thank God, because I, I don't know a lot about it. I, I've just brought it up. It was signed in 1961 to, oh God, um, 
there, there are a few places on Earth where there has never been war, where the environment is fully protected and where scientific research has priority. The whole of the Antarctic continent is like this, a land which the Antarctic Treaty parties call a natural reserve devoted to peace and science. Basically, most of the, including Russia, America, back in 1961, countries came together and kind of agreed to leave Antarctic alone. But Michael, that's nice, but it's no evidence that they're all in cahoots together. Um, 28 nations. No. Yeah, um, but it's, wor- it's worth exploring, no, it's though. not really, is it? No, but it's worth uh, exploring. Uh, a couple of little, t- a little qu- quickies, Richie, if you don't mind. One is the uh, amazing story. I would suggest your listeners um, do an internet search, definitely not Google, though, uh, for someone called Barnaby Jack. Barnaby Jack. He was a hacker who was about to do a demonstration uh, back, I think it was uh, about 2005, uh, he, uh, of hacking a pacemaker and killing somebody. Well, he wasn't actually going to kill them on stage, but he was going to show you, have a pacemaker and show you what you could do. He, he reckoned that he could, uh, using his, the software on his phone, hack all, any pacemaker within Wi-Fi distance, say for uh, around sort of 50 yards around, and kill them. You're kidding uh, me. Th- that's because they, they, they are, you know, what you can do is give, give the person like 300-volt uh, 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 shock or something, and actually send their heart into a rhythm and then start firing their heart. As soon as their heart is about to, to uh, you know, to fire its own little electric system, basically trip it out so the heart stops working. Now, he then, just before he was going to do that demonstration, he himself died very mysteriously. Well, I mean, he suddenly started taking loads of drugs the night before um, that he was going to, uh, uh, he'd never taken before. And so that he was killed. He was bumped off because he was showing the CIA and other agencies can use Wi-Fi to kill people via their pacemaker. Barnaby Jack, the guy's name. The other thing was this uh, amazing, brilliant article. You can look it up. I think it's in the mirror, too, about a guy called Steve Smith, who drove a car, electric car, 350 miles there and back in a day. And what an absolute nightmare he had. (laughs) Because, of course, it's... The, 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 the advertised range of the car was actually, the actual range was about 100 miles less on this battery. And then he had loads of trouble actually finding the right place to charge it. So ultimately, it cost him double what it would have cost in his diesel BMW in terms of just charging the car up. Loads and loads of extra stress. And by the way, 90 minutes extra in each direction. So this whole electric car thing, Nonsense, isn't it? It's a total disaster, and it's getting more and more expensive all the time. So it's just another scam. Electric cars are a scam. What they really want to do is stop us travelling. Get you off the road. Yeah, I spoke a little bit about that with with, uh, David Curtin and Air One. Thanks for coming back today, pal, for the first time this year. I I hope you'll continue to come back on um, with your excellent reporting. Your programme is brilliant. I don't say that unless I mean it. It's every Friday at five o'clock. Not the BCFM Politics Show with uh, Tony Gosling and and, and plenty of guests and brilliant long-form interviews. Well, that's right. We have... We have um, Martin Summers as well. Martin, yeah. Okay, so the, the basic web the basic website, if you want to just listen to the stream at 5 uh, p.m. on a Friday, uh, it, we're usually on for about three hours. The stream is at talkradio.org.uk. And at 11 a.m. and 11 p.m. every day, they have a repeat on there of it. And you get all sorts of other interesting bits and bobs in between, including your show, by the way. We, 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 we rebroadcast that on that on that stream, the PRSC which is stream. Ma- which is an amazing uh, thing. talkradio.org.uk. 
Tony, thanks, mate. Godspeed. Speak again real soon. Brilliant stuff from Tony Gosling. Do check out the books, The Siege of Heaven, The Traitors of Arnhem. They're, they're brilliant books. I've got them here. Uh, the Siege of Heaven deals with the, um, the, the influence of the occult on governments here in this country, in the UK, since the English Civil War. It's uh, it's brilliant. The Traders of Arnhem, Martin Borman, check him out. Great stuff. Tony Gosling. Uh, you'll, you'll find him on Bilderberg.org, thisweek.org.uk. He's giving you the links for the live show. And Tony will be back again on this programme real soon, no doubt. It is pretty much 11 minutes to the top of the hour. This is your Richie Allen show. Back in, well, in a couple of seconds. I don't know what happened there. Something was supposed to happen. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was this... The Richie Allen Show features doctors, scientists, academics and researchers who have been banned by the legacy media. Support Richie now by making a financial contribution at richieallen.co.uk. Yes, I tell you what though, I'm, I'm interested. Michael dropped in there. Thanks Michael for that by the way, with the Antarctic Treaty. And the best thing to do when you don't know is just be honest. I didn't know and Tony, totally honest, didn't know either. I should though, I should know this stuff. It pisses me off. But thanks, Michael. Um, it was according to Wikipedia, it was the first arms control agreement established during the Cold War, setting aside the continent as a scientific preserve, establishing freedom of scientific investigation and banning military activity for the purposes of the treaty system. Antarctica is defined as all the land and ice shelves south of 60 degrees S latitude. Since September 2004, um, the Antarctic Treaty Secretariat, which implements the treaty system, is headquartered in Buenos Aires in Argentina. The treaty was opened for signature on December 1st, 1959, and came into force on June 23rd, 1961. The original signatories were the 12 countries active in Antarctica during the International Geophysical Year of 57 to 58, those countries, Argentina, Australia, Belgium, Chile, France, Japan, New Zealand, Norway, South Africa, the Soviet Union, or the Soviet Union, the UK and the United States. But I kind of guess, I kind of guess where Michael might be going with this, because we have heard from very interesting men and women on this programme over the years who have made um, all manner of claims and suggestions about the region, Antarctica. We've heard from people say that if that 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 explorers are only permitted to travel so far in Antarctica and then they can't go any further. These are people who believe the Earth is flat. I don't I don't see that myself. That's something I don't agree with, but it doesn't matter what I agree with. And then there are those who I believe they think that there is something buried beneath the ice in, in Antarctica. There something to do with with life on other planets or life in other dimensions. I've been lucky enough long before COVID when we used to have time for these types of interviews. That gives me the opportunity to mention. Again, I asked my partner, my life partner, uh, Caroline uh, Tisserand. I asked her, I said, Caroline, you, you love the subject matter. You read a lot about it. The big question, why? Why are we here? Where have we come from, really, in reality? And all the other subjects then that come out of that. So I asked her, would she be interested in making a podcast? And would she, 
interview some of those authors whose books she has been reading. She is a voracious reader. And our bedroom, my side of the bedroom, this is ironic really because I'm the messy one, she's the neat one. My side of the bedroom is relatively tidy. It really is really. A couple of books on the, the bedside table and that's pretty much it really. The dogs or one of the dogs tends to kind of come into the bedroom and, and, and sleep on the carpet next to the bed. Her side of the bed, there's, there must be 300 books all to do with the nature of reality, where we came from, lost civilizations, energy healing, past lives. She loves it. And she's very, very intelligent. And she's a wonderful listener. Uh, so I said, look, do an interview a week with your own show. You can do, the interviews can be as long as you like, but she'll produce it herself. And that will be with us pretty soon, I would imagine. You're talking a few weeks, I reckon. And I'm really excited about it. And uh, I'm really, really excited about it. I will do the engineering, which is basically just sitting there, moving the faders and all of that. Not because she can't do it, not because she's a woman, but it'll give her all the time to concentrate on nothing but speaking with her her guest. So I'm really looking forward to that, really. I really am. So yeah, watch this space is the oldest cliche in the world. But we, we, we look forward to that, don't we? Now Steve T says, in his opinion, the Antarctic Treaty is really in place to stop us exploring beyond the ice wall. Thanks for that, Steve. I, I, I guess plenty of listeners will, will agree with that or, or see it similarly. Uh, Baird says, so no one goes to the Antarctic and finds out that the giants are there and the Earth is flat. In it, says Baird. You might be right. How do I know? Lovely phone calls over the years. I did great interviews with 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 Tim. What's Tim's surname? A British guy, lovely guy, uh, who's written great books about aliens over the years. It'll come back to me, uh, Tim's surname. So it will. David says, Richie, ask about the Bristol area hotels being taken over to accommodate all these young fighters. Tyrant Finder, you mentioned, has done videos. I don't know who that is. But that doesn't mean anything. I'm sure that person doesn't know who I am. I just don't spend a lot of time these days watching videos because I don't have any bloody time. Backbeat mentions Mark Windows. Yes, we love Mark too. Thanks for that. Patrick says, it is the dark satanic occult driving this nonsense. The occult itself is synonymous with knowledge and is not bad of itself. And ordinary humans can learn much from its wisdom and gain greater understanding of what it really is to be human. Thank you. Craig says, Rothschild from Red, from Red Shield. The Red Shield underpins Rome, the Catholic Church, communism and many socialist movements. It is also the background for the Nazis. Red for blood and blood sacrificed. Inside the Nazi flag is also a stylized eye, uh, says Craig. He's bang on. Time and again, the same imagery comes up. The Red Romans against the White Greeks. The Red Dragon against the White Dragon. The Red Rose against the White Rose. The Reds against the Whites in Bolshevik Russia. And every time the Red blood defeats the White purity. I do not see these as coincidence, he, he, coincidence, he says, every time, he says, every time, the red blood wins over the white purity. Thanks so much for that, Craig. I really appreciate it. Okay, that's pretty much it for me. Thank you for listening to today's programme. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Tony for coming on this hour and last hour to uh, David Curtin from the Heritage Party. Really enjoyed listening to both of my guests and reading your comments. We, you and me, will be back here, I suppose, 
I know I will be, I don't know about you, but back tomorrow at 5 o'clock UK time for Tuesday's edition of The Richie Allen Show. I thought it might be nice today to close out the programme with Gary Moore and Phil Linnett and you know the song. Parisian Walkways. See you tomorrow.